Test, 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 test. We're gonna pick a winner today. The rest of you, technically, are losers. So, live with that. Scene of the crime at Mundangerous Studios in New York City. I'm your host Shane, and I'm your host Ishan, and welcome to episode 58 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to create and run a murder mystery. But first, there's foul play in Thronehold in the Morning Glory campaign, and later, the investigator Investments makes the collar while wearing one in the Character Creation Forge. So we're going to jump right into it shortly, but before we do that, I want to thank everybody who entered the iTunes review contest we've been running for the past couple of weeks. We are giving away a copy of Pathfinder Horror Adventures. As promised, we will be announcing the winner later on in the show. So, you know, fast forward through the garbage. Right. <laughs> All right. Where are we in the Morning Glory campaign? Right. So this is our three-year, 80-session Eberron campaign that we've been recapping and at this point the party has returned seer to the material plane and the nations of corvair have gathered to renegotiate the treaty of thronehold well when you say return seer you mean we have eliminated the mornland that <laughs> heretofore has been the defining landmark of the eberron setting the horrible scar across the continent yes yeah okay so mm-hmm. we have returned the the country that once was there to there Yes, and it's slightly worse for wear. Right. Uh, and now all of the nations that were previously at war have realized, oh crap, we only stopped fighting because one of us disappeared. Now they're back. What are we going to do? Maybe we should talk. Let's talk to them. Uh, I mean, it slightly less bellicose than last time, so that's progress. <laughs> Everyone's very tired, yes. <laughs> As is Seer, which has been, by their reckoning, gone for 25 years, fighting off undead incursions constantly and by the perception of people on eberron has been gone for about four years yeah so time slippage (laughs) (laughs) and old grudges right (laughs) so if you recall the party had been accused of being terrorists and destroying an entire tower in sharn that killed six thousand people they of course didn't actually do it but they have yet to prove that they didn't do it. So Queen Danelle of Seer has asked the party to be her bodyguards on the trip to Thronehold. They travel there. Thronehold is the fortified castle that was the seat of power of the Empire of Galifar for about a thousand years until the Empire broke apart and the Blast War, which lasted a hundred years, began. It's currently watched over by a council that basically just keeps it clean and safe in case there's ever a need for another continent-wide emperor again (laughs) unless there's ever reunification we'll be ready right and a few years ago it was the site of the negotiations for the last treaty so the party shows up with the nell and negotiations begin as expected the people they're dealing with are and this is actually taken directly from the email i sent to the players queen arala of ondere who is stony-faced and pragmatic she's fair but hard as King Boronel of Breland. He's the most open-minded and devoted to maintaining the peace, but the attack on Sharn has him out for justice, and he believes the party is the cause. There was High Cardinal Crozen of Thrain, and the new Keeper of the Flame, the head of the Church of the Silver Flame, Lauren Davis, stays in Flamekeep. So Crozen, we knew, is the master politician who's never had a problem bending the rules when it fits what he believes need to get done. Yeah, through Bran's sources who are still in Thrain, he's discovered that Jayla Darren, the old Keeper of the Flame, who the party trusts, had been absent for a while. And now a new Keeper has been installed. Jayla has, quote unquote, voluntarily stepped down. And a new Keeper, Lauren Davis, who's an 11-year-old half-elven child, um, has been installed as the Keeper with the full support of High Cardinal Crozen. So hang on, (laughs) because... Jayla Darren was not trusted by everybody, just by Brand, <laughs> whom nobody in the party trusted anyway. So, But everyone else was much more willing to trust people in general. Well, that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> she seems great. 
Yeah, but this is definitely something very strange that we have only just learned. Yes. So Crozen shows up, and already he is certainly suspect. There's King Caius III of Carnath. He's in his early 20s, and he's bent on proving himself. He's accompanied by his aunt Mirala, who was regent until he came of age just a few years ago. And then, of course, there's Queen Danelle of Seir, uh, accompanied by the party. There are other nations on the continent, but they didn't exist before this original treaty just a few years ago. So they're not being invited until later. And behind the scenes, really, like 13 different countries and parties with multiple people in those parties was just way too much for me to juggle for one negotiation. Yeah, that would have been a fun session of you talking to yourself yeah. in multiple voices <laughs> and then losing track of the voices and then us being confused and us leaving. Yeah, I'll be these 12 guys. Yeah. <laughs> Do you enjoy my my uh, oral reading of The Hobbit? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so after fruitless negotiations for most of an afternoon. Well, you say fruitless, hang on. But it wasn't a total waste, right? Because the we still got a sense of what was going on out of this. And we were able to try and get the measure of the room. That's so, true. So we, the useful information was gained. It just wasn't useful in actually hammering out a treaty. Yeah, in-game, I didn't actually like role play out all the different parties talking to each other because there would have been nothing for you guys to do but you got the cliff's notes version of their stances what their personalities were like and of course you guys were making you know insight checks and lore checks to see like who was telling the truth who was bluffing yeah and yeah. like we would you know take a break in the session and then it was like okay so we're going to talk to that person right or talk to their entourage and see what's going on right but after the first day of negotiations each entourage retires to a separate wing of the castle there are five wings one for each of the five nations and everyone separates and each wing is guarded by members of the thronehold council so nobody can actually like visit other wings during the night during the second watch brand hears some flapping wings outside hey perception checks he looks outside and sees what could be a flock of birds but he can't really get a clear look at it and you know, the smarter characters in the party determined that it's kind of out of place for a flock of birds to be this far north in the middle of winter, but, you know, it could be natural. Yeah, the smarter characters. <laughs> we the had bard. Nobody the bard. trained in nature. I think the bard had, like, everything. Yeah, did she? <laughs> During the third watch, Bastion hears an owl hoot outside several times, and then the hooting stops abruptly. But then the next morning... Everybody in the castle is woken up by a scream. They rush over because the scream is coming from the wing of the Thrainish delegation. It turns out High Cardinal Crozen is dead in his bed. His throat has been ripped out. Caius III of Carnath is missing. And so Bran says, hey, I am now the highest ranking member of this delegation from Thrain. <laughs> because I am a full inquisitor and you are all politicians. It took a little bit of persuasion, but the Thrainish guards and the rest of the entourage was basically like, oh, wait, is that is that your rosette? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, no, I guess you're in charge. You're right. <laughs> and so I immediately ordered everybody out of the room and began <laughs> investigating myself. And of course, because Crozen had died, the, the Thrainish delegation could basically say, like, get out of here, we're taking over this investigation. Right. So the party starts investigating and actually finds Caius gagged and bound in a secret room hidden in between their chamber and Danelle's chamber. And when he's freed, he tells everybody that the party kidnapped him in the middle of the night. Yeah, so it's weird how we found him. It turned out we investigated all over every delegation's chambers looking for evidence. We ended up finding evidence that there were small animals about that maybe had used little rat holes, basically, behind the walls to get around within the fortress. And then, from there, we sent an arcane eye down to follow one of those, and in between our chamber and Danelle's, we found Caius. Right. The party was kind of like, uh, should we tell anybody about this? Because right, yeah. this looks pretty bad for us. Yeah, and so <laughs> and now Brand is leading this investigation and has this information. Cardinal Crozen, whom he has long considered his enemy and untrustworthy, is now dead. And going through his personal documents, I think I basically found him suspicious of the new Keeper of the Flame. Remarkably loyal to Jayla Darren, completely against my own understanding and perception. And then dead right so what could have been my biggest ally gone 
And then I find out I'm framed for his murder. (laughs) (laughs) So Crozen is dead. The party is framed. The castle was locked down. There was no teleportation allowed in or out. That prevented other people from simply teleporting into the middle of a negotiation, dropping a bomb, and killing, you know, the heads of state of the entire continent. Also prevented someone from dropping a bomb, teleporting away, and killing all the heads of state. Right. The guards say that no one approached the island, which means the party was in the middle of a murder mystery. So we'll discuss how they figured it out as we talk about how you can go about building one on your own. So Shane, what is a murder mystery? It's a whodunit. Like uh, the movie Clue. Or Agatha Christie novels. Murder on the Orient Express. A lot of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of those occur in basically his living room with like mm-hmm. Lestrade and like one witness. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the murders in the room morgue. <laughs> it also reminds me a bit of, we talked about before uh, at Gen Con, we played Mansions of Madness, which has a very similar vibe. Yeah. Not generally surrounding murder per se, but yeah. No, but it's a vibe that we'll, we'll come back to as we sort of talk about what you're going for. If you're going to create a murder mystery. Most of us have probably, at some point in our lives, gone to a murder mystery party. Have you been to one? No. What? No. (laughs) I think that is a ridiculous assertion. You only host them? I think lots of people have heard of that concept, right? And it's played up in popular fiction, but like, I don't, I don't. Have you never actually been to one? No, I've never been to like a murder mystery dinner theater. That's really sad. No, that's depressing. Dude, I didn't even go to sleep no more when it was still running. (laughs) I've done all of those things. They're fun, but if you haven't done them, basically you gather people together in the room, hand out roles, and then everyone sort of tries to figure out whose card says, hey, you know, you're the murderer. Right, right. They're a combination of an investigation and a one-shot, because, you know, they don't usually take that long. You don't do an entire arc of a murder mystery. I mean, you could, right? There's, You've got to build a much bigger mystery. <laughs> a really, Yeah, a really big mystery. I think for what we're going to talk about, though, we're going to focus on something shorter term. Yeah, so if you want to actually go back and listen to episodes 20 and 21, that is investigations and one-shots. There's a certain element of tropiness when you run or play a murder mystery. It can be a nice respite from the intensity of a really long campaign, mainly because it it's a self-contained vignette. You know, there's the haunted house on the hill, and... For whatever reason, everybody is trapped there for the night. Usually each person who's present is a suspect. Uh, In a typical RPG murder mystery, the party will act as a unit trying to figure out who did the killing, who the culprit is. But this advice can work either way. You know, you might have a certain kind of RPG where every player is a suspect and doesn't necessarily know who among them committed the crime. I mean, this sounds like a wonderful paranoia situation. (laughs) This is exactly the type of paranoia game I want to play. So all the advice that we're going to talk about will work for either situation. And in the Morning Glory campaign, it was the the party knew that they hadn't committed the crime and they knew that no one else in their party had. So they were sort of acting as one investigative squad to figure out who actually did it. We acted really, really suspect. (laughs) leading into it because we really kicked the tires on how we could snoop around that place before (laughs) before finally settling and going to bed (laughs) we really walked right into that (laughs) why are you outside arguing with the groundskeeper right (laughs) how many times did you ask the guards at different ways to try and get out of your chambers (laughs) (laughs) they questioned me at length asking me whether they could teleport in or out right (laughs) all right so what are the goals of a murder mystery Well, you want to tell a finite story. You know, someone or something actually did do it, whatever it in the whodunit is. There's a mystery to solve, but there should actually be an answer that players can discover in the end, whether or not they're actually successful in uncovering it on their own. Yeah, I think that's important, is that success is not just about figuring out who did it. You have to figure out who did it, you have to prove it, you have to get them arrested, and you have to do it in time, right? Right. The case can't go cold and then find out you still kind of fail, right? Which is important. When your players lose, you still rub it in their face of who the, who, who the perpetrator was, right? It's also useful to remember if, you know, you have a brilliant player or someone who makes a lucky guess, right? Just because they may have actually figured out, like, what happened doesn't mean that they can prove to the other NPCs or the other PCs that that's actually true. Yeah, you can know it all along and still not be able to prove it yet. Yeah. Right. One of my uh, 
favorite things that I see in, in fiction a lot, right, is the enemy, like the BBEG has basically entrapped the party. And like, they know that Lex Luthor is the one who did this, but none of the reporters know, you know, no one else in the public knows. And if you start calling out this upstanding fine gentleman in front of everybody, you're going to look like the crazy one. Yeah. It's also an opportunity for your players to break the fourth wall a little bit. Like, go ahead and let them exercise their own personal deductive skills. Like, they don't necessarily need to roll everything. Let people sit around the table, compare clues, figure things out, try to rearrange those anagrams, whatever it is you've left them. You know, it can be a session-long puzzle. Yeah, which is not the same thing as not using the system that you're playing, right? right? You still want to use your system to gather the clues. It's just how you interpret and use the clues that the players are handling sort of above the table more so than they are in character. Yeah, and and of course, you know, if you have someone who isn't particularly good at puzzles, but they're playing an intelligent character, yeah, you let them make the roles, you know? But this is one of those situations where it's fine when everyone, like, gets together, puts their, their heads together and tries to figure something out, and they don't necessarily do it in character. Right. Okay, so how do we go about creating a murder mystery session? I think one of the most important things is your setting. You really need a sequestered location. The whole point is that you're taking the party away from the main storyline so that you can have all of this occur in isolation. You know, the story is self-contained. So you might need to provide reasons why the party is cut off. In a low-power game, that's a lot easier. You know, you're stranded for the night with no gas. Yeah, or uh, you don't want the party to just disengage from the mystery by Mm -hmm. leaving that's the other problem you can run into yeah often the only way they can leave is by solving this mystery yeah Uh, you also need a victim who died mr uh, body obviously yeah (laughs) or you know what was stolen what 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 happened what needs to be figured out Mm -hmm. and then of course what is the party's motivation for solving this if they're trapped for the night and you know one by one people are getting murdered then, hey, you know, that's great. They want to make sure they don't get murdered. Right, yeah. Or if, you know, they're being accused of the crime, they're trying to prove themselves honest. (laughs) But ideally, you've really just sort of piqued the interest of your players and they want to solve a mystery, which, you know, usually you're going to know if that's going to work before you try to introduce a murder mystery setting. Yeah, that's a good idea to, you know, know your players. We talked about this a little before, but you want some sort of countdown. There should be time pressure to get this solved immediately. You know, they can't, For example, like take multiple long rests. Yeah, and this isn't necessarily like a ticking clock at the table, but this is just within the story. They've got something urgent that needs to be done. Right, like nightfall is coming and that's when whoever it is murders people. Or the body count is rising. (laughs) (laughs) Or the train is going to end the journey and then whoever it is is just going to get off with all the other passengers and disappear. Yeah, like I I think of From Hell, the... Johnny oh, Depp, yeah. the uh-huh. Jack the Ripper story, right? And it's it's all about him chasing down the potential leads of who is Jack the Ripper before he strikes again. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> it's called From Hell. <laughs> uh, although you could have a scenario where there is an actual like timer counting down. You know, think of like uh, Saw. You know, there's, there's a bomb that's going to go off and you need to figure out who's the crazy person who put us in this. Well, it's kind of more like Saw 2. I don't know anything about those movies. <laughs> yes. There was an episode of Castle that was a lot like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can have a literal clock, but I, I think putting that at the table is going to turn off some players, right? The anxiety that comes with the ticking clock, a physical ticking clock, can be really stressful. You also need suspects. And this is probably the most fun that you have making and playing this as a GM. Each one needs their own motivation. They probably have secrets that they don't want spilled. I wouldn't be afraid to make a lot of these people caricatures, you know, because you've got so many of them. Yeah, feel free to throw in tropes left and right because that's what your players are going to remember. If you think of Clue, right, everyone was named after their appearance, right? (laughs) The maid was Mrs. White (laughs) because she wore a white outfit, right? Professor Plum wore purple. (laughs) So it's easy to remember who those are based on that sort of thing. If you want a more immersive kind of situation, right, you need something that's easy to grasp onto even though you're throwing all of these character names at players who otherwise might not have a vested interest in learning who they are. Right. It also helps your players understand what the motivations are of these people. You know, the rich inheritor who's like kind of stuck up, looks down on you, but is upset that he doesn't have any servants around. Like, 
okay, it helps your players determine what that person's motivation might have been for murder. Right, right. Or the hardworking but unrecognized head of staff. Hmm, okay, I get it. Yeah, he could be jealous. And if the first guy gets murdered. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a good point. Don't forget to characterize your victim in that way, too. Right. This works really well if the different suspects have relationships with each other, pre-existing, that then get played off. And, you know, often troubled relationships in some way. Yeah, this is a good time to build just sort of a, a map of relationships, right? So you might have their actual relationship, mother, father, employer, that sort of thing, and then their emotional relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Jealous of, doesn't think about it all, lover and, and unrequited love, right? right? In order for it to actually be a mystery, everyone really needs to have motivation and opportunity to have committed this murder. Exactly. And so once you have all of that sort of plotted out in advance— then you can start building the session from there, right? And that's that's the beauty of it is everything flows out of that mapping that you've created for your suspects. So you're going to need to throw some obstacles in the way of your party because, like we've said, this is a bit of a contrived scenario. There have to be reasons that this mystery can't just be easily solved. Like I think, for example, if you're playing a Dungeons & Dragons murder mystery, why doesn't someone just like plop down Zone of Truth, stick everybody in it, and then like figure out who did it? I mean, there's there's ways around all those things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody refuses to answer, maybe because they can't speak, maybe because they are afraid to reveal information, maybe because they do know something that they they don't want to share, or maybe just because they don't recognize your authority. Yeah, maybe they have diplomatic immunity. Maybe there's 13 of them and there's four of you, and they're all like, uh, no, we're not all turning out our pockets, weirdo. But then the one who does kind of come behind the scenes... Or, or come back channel <laughs> to give you information is is now changed in that light mm-hmm. right same thing with speak with dead right that's the classic like, oh i'll just ask the victim hey who killed you i don't know i got hit in the back of the head uh-huh. <laughs> right like, <laughs> he wore a mask it might not have even have been a him <laughs> or my favorite they definitely saw who it was but that that's not them but it wasn't it, actually you know, them definitely yeah. not that's the thing if you get the answer out of the corpse it's not true. Right. <laughs> Unless it's that one time. Right. <laughs> so the other option is that like everyone is lying, but the degree and specificity of their particular lies is hard to figure out. So maybe you do throw everyone in a zone of truth or there's a mind reader, but everybody is like obfuscating in a particular manner mm-hmm. or like no one wants to tell the whole truth. And that's where all these prior relationships are really going to help you because they've got those secrets. They don't want the whole truth coming out. Even if they didn't kill this guy, they don't want everyone to know about their affair or their embezzlement or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's the secondary motivations that will really get you. And I'm, you know, I don't want to answer that question satisfies the requirements of zone of truth. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing you need is incriminating evidence because of course, if your players are going to solve this mystery, there's got to be proof somewhere but it's likely, you know, really well hidden. Yeah, and this is this is the trick, right? Is knowing how specific your evidence needs to be. You had planned it so that Caius was hidden in a room next to our chambers, mm-hmm. right? You planned the frame job. And so it didn't matter what clues we found to lead us there. As soon as we found it, that's really when the mystery kicks off, right? Right, it doesn't matter what it says. Right. So... In another way, you might try and plan the breadcrumbs that are going to lead ultimately to the solution. But part of the problem is just that the players are going to investigate in the order and the direction that they think of, which might not be the way that you approach it in your planning. So it's always good to know these relationships, these maps, these method, (laughs) what actually happened, right? If you lock down those details or at least the potential details in your mind, then you can just answer the question honestly. Right. So when somebody goes, hey, is the glass of that window, is that inside the house or outside the house? You know the answer to that if you know the window got broken when the murderer was breaking out of the house Mm -hmm. or if that broken window is how he got into the house. And of course, the location of the glass on its own isn't going to give you the answer. Right. But it's a useful clue for your players. Right. I really prefer just hiding everything in plain sight or making everything a lie. So maybe there totally is very obvious evidence that implicates one person. In fact, proves that one person did it. And it is basically lying out or poorly hidden. Perfect. 
(laughs) (laughs) Someone's getting framed. Right. (laughs) So let's actually talk about the clues. Because these are these are those breadcrumbs that Shane was talking about. In general, I find that fewer is easier. You know, I think four to five of them total is probably plenty. Although, you know, you can certainly do more if you want. But you're going to want to plan them so that you don't have to find every single one. You don't want people stuck there because they couldn't find like the one clue at the false bottom of the trunk. Right. And you also want to set them up so that you can limit their scope. You don't want them to start pulling really, really hard on one thread and unravel the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so sometimes that just means the battery dies on the phone, <laughs> right? <laughs> like now you can't go through all of the text messages. You got the one clue that you're going to get. Yeah, we mentioned the tropiness. These are expected things that happen right. in, in this kind of genre session. So there's two ways to sort of structure your clues to make sure that the whole mystery doesn't come out all at once. There's complementary, which means each clue forms a piece of a puzzle, right? They all fit together. And then once you have all of them, you've got an entire picture and you can say, oh, okay, yeah, that's actually what happened. I would say you probably should need about 80% of these complementary clues to really understand what's going on. But like, it's way tougher to pull off to have like a clue that gives you like 20% of the solution. Yeah, that's the trick is you don't know how big a clue is going to be in sharing that piece of the picture, right? Or how big your players are going to think it is. Yeah, I I mean, if you seize onto a clue, especially if you interpret it the wrong way, everything looks like a red herring Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it just doesn't work anymore. Or you've got that player who just has that intuition for the answer and after two clues, he's got the answer and crap, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. They're going to go confront him and we're only an hour into the session. <laughs> yeah, because you're sort of hoping for this ideal situation where they find a clue and they've got like four different hypotheses and they find another clue. Oh, now it's three different hypotheses. Right. You know? But the chances of that actually happening with so many different players is pretty unlikely. Yeah. So yeah. I prefer contingent clues, which is what I did in, in Morning Glory, which is they get a few clues and then those clues lead to other more revealing clues yeah so and this is this is really nice if you can change physical locations as a result of the clues so it's oh well now that i have the bank records i'm going to go talk to somebody at the bank Mm -hmm. right and then that somebody at the bank can can lead me to where the money got spent or whatever right or you know it prompts the party to then circle back around to one of their previous options you know we can talk to the conductor of the train we can talk to the person who's taking the tickets we can uh, talk to the the engineer. Oh, okay. You said that, that that their ticket looked strange. Okay, now let's go talk to the ticket taker. Yep. In our case, you can talk to the guards in every single wing. Yep. And then test the <laughs> efficacy of true seeing and invisibility. <laughs> <laughs> so when your players are discovering these clues, it's a lot like, well, really just go listen to the investigation episode. <laughs> Let them use their skills. Uh, make sure that there are backups to your clues if the party doesn't find them either there's an alternate clue or you know just prod your party you know have some npc be like oh but wait what about this thing yeah if they're not looking in the right place that can be difficult but part of it is you don't want to leave too much up to chance so if they need to get one of the clues in the room and they've already failed their rolls on two of them when they search the desk drawer they just find the piece they're looking for yeah sometimes it's fine if it's just uh, like that Carmen San Diego result you got when you went to the wrong place, which is like, I'm sorry, I've never heard of anybody like that. Yeah. And like, you just know that they're not lying. Right. Like they have no idea what you're talking exactly. about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's actually like the core mechanic of Gumshoe, which is a less of a whodunit and more of a how done it kind of game. But when you search, you just find the clue if you have points in the skill. There's mm. no randomness left up to that. The randomness it comes from when you're trying to push it to gain extra information on that clue. Mm. In other systems, this is one of the reasons why I like having one of the NPCs be a bumbling fool who can stumble upon any kind of thing you need them to discover. <laughs> right. <laughs> I lean against the mantle with my elbow right. and oh, opens the secret door. Right, thanks, Shaggy. <laughs> Zoinks. <laughs> and of course, you're going to want to have some of these clues be red herrings. You know, something that throws the party off the trail. Maybe they're planted, just like basically Caius was was a red herring, pointing the all of the evidence at the party. But to make a really good one, it 
it should point obviously to one culprit, but in the context of other information that then comes out later, it's still accurate, but it becomes irrelevant or then points to the actual person. So you don't want future information to invalidate the red herring. Yeah, you hit us with so much red herring in this murder mystery because the initial red herring, Caius is missing, points to Caius as the murderer, right? Right. He killed Crozen and then left. <laughs> and then we find while, him. While Morala is going, no, it definitely that's impossible. We're being framed. Right. And then we find him tied up next to our own chambers and it's like, wait, <laughs> now we're being framed. <laughs> I mean, even before that, like, Crozen was just not a very nice person. And basically, I think everyone at the table was going, oh, yeah, Crozen is probably the one who's going to do something really awful here. In fact, I think going into it, Crozen was the one that we were most concerned about screwing things up in some way and, and taking advantage of the chance to actually assassinate someone. Yeah. So to get back to how this played out in the Morning Glory campaign. Bran has asserted his inquisitorial privilege and the Thrainish delegation has accepted that. So they get to look around everywhere and they find out that Crozen didn't put up a fight. He was murdered basically in his sleep. His throat was torn out by what looked like claws, but the marks are too close together to be an animal's paw. And... <laughs> In order to prevent speak with dead, this is one of those obstacles I threw in, his corpse has also been coated in Keeper's Breath, which is a powder made from the crushed bones of people who killed family members but then went unpunished. And that prevents resurrection and speak with dead. And through your lord checks, your bard realized that it's most easily found on Maybar. And of course, who's been to Maybar? Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, us and the rest of the Syrian delegation. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, Thrain and Seer were sort of mortal enemies during the war, so this was all in fitting with the zeitgeist. Yeah, and, of course, the party had uncovered all of that. I don't think they brought it to the table right now. Had uncovered that Primus, who was working with Seer, had basically planted disjunct the silver flame. Right. <laughs> they also found that all the windows and the doors in Crozen's wing of the castle were arcane-locked from the inside. There are no signs of Force entry. The rooms are immaculate because nobody lives there, but the council, you know, cleans it pretty often. But as Shane mentioned before, there's a mouse hole in the wall underneath Crozen's bed. However, the mouse hole looks like it's been chewed through three feet of solid stone. And then Bahar, who has his arcane eye. Well, hang on. <laughs> so we did have to ask and confirm at this point. Rats can't actually chew through solid, solid stone, stone, can they? <laughs> like we're like, wait, wait, Ishan, don't mess with us. <laughs> wait, rats can't do that. Can we rule out <laughs> normal rats. animals doing this? <laughs> like, yes, yes, you can. I, I like looked it up, and I think I think it's possible actually, but like it, it takes forever, and like one rat would die. Yeah, they just don't have the motivation to do that, right? Right, like yeah. Um, but I, I had the, the guards, like the Thronehold Council, the caretakers say, oh, that definitely was not there like two days ago. So then Bahar uses his arcane eye and sort of just follows the mouse hole to see where it goes. It leads into the walls. One way out was into the chamber where the party had found Caius. I mean, that's where we found, that's how we found Caius, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so from there, I think, how do we determine where Caius actually was, where that chamber was? I think you guys had discovered the secret room before. You'd open it and like it was empty. I was like, oh, okay, that's neat to know. <laughs> and then, and then you know, sometime during the night, Caius ended up in your secret room. <laughs> At this point, you guys were actually, I think, a bit stymied. We're like, uh, okay, we go talk to some more people. There, of course, are recriminations back and forth. People saying like, I mean, Caius and Morala are basically like screaming like, obviously they did it. You know, they just came back from who knows where. It must be Seer. The other, the others are basically going, uh, kind of sounds like Seer. <laughs> <laughs> and then you guys started amongst yourselves recounting you know, your clues, sort of laying the clues out on the proverbial table and trying to figure out what was going on. And so this is where I sort of prodded you. Like one of the guards was like, oh, outside? Well, did you check on the roof? <laughs> Which was just so dumb <laughs> because we had, had like multiple like the only thing we knew going into it was what we had heard the night before mm -hmm. i think there were other so many other things happening that you guys had sort of like forgotten oh right we had like two clues in the middle of the night yeah we like yeah. passed perception checks that's weird <laughs> although if you had gone out to investigate in the middle of the night that would have been 
excellent for me because the frame job writes itself. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but also, did you plan on Brand invoking inquisitorial privilege? Because that just, like, <laughs> now it was like the, the murderer trying to find himself, right? Like, it's like The Departed where <laughs> Matt Damon is literally tasked with investigating to discover himself because he's the mole. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Did I expect you to, like, flash your rosette? No, but, it, like, it worked out really well. I was basically assuming you guys were going to take over the investigation somehow. Right. You know, like, whether it was just persuasion or basically being like, hey, Danelle, make this happen. <laughs> you just <laughs> didn't anticipate Brand seeing a power vacuum. <laughs> Jumping at the Rushing chance to, to fill, fill it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, makes me the second highest ranked person in, in the entire country right now. Even though you're not actually in the country. No, well, yeah, and I'm not actually welcome either. Right. <laughs> After that little problem I had with Katashka's heart. Right. You're lucky there were no babies around. Yeah. So after just a little bit of prodding, the party decides to investigate the roof. And up there, they find a dead owl that has been killed by the same kind of claw marks that killed Crozen. They also see prints in the light snow that remains on the roof. There are a few human-sized footprints and then many, many small rodent tracks leading across the roof in the direction of Crozen's chambers, like above on top of the roof. And the party walks in that direction and sees that there is a small hole chewed directly through the roof of the castle that then leads straight down. Bahar uses uses his arcane eye and finds that it, it does lead eventually to Crozen's chambers. So at this point, we've got, I don't know, a working theory, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that brings us to the resolution. How do you then wrap all this up once your players have all the clues that you've created? The first thing is going to be that epiphany moment, yeah. right? When somebody really thinks they figured it out and they think they've got the information they need to prove it. That can happen way sooner than you anticipate. Oh, yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> players are nothing if not egomaniacal. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely understand. And sometimes that means you've got to kind of tamp down their expectations or have an NPC like poke a hole in their theory. Yeah. Sometimes you want them to run with it. Yeah, so that's a that's just a pacing kind of thing, right? Is If they have the epiphany early, you want them to spend time proving that they're right before you kind of move on into the reveal. Right. right? And if, you know, the, they got the final clue and then they have their epiphany and you're getting toward the end of, like, the session, drop all the red herrings, yep. you know? Drop all the obfuscation. Don't have the snarky NPC. Like, make them second-guess themselves. Right. Let them, let them make that logic test and move on. Yep. <laughs> so we make a distinction between the epiphany, the realization of what the answer is, and then the reveal, mm -hmm. which is sort of, if you've had the epiphany, that's confirmation that you were correct. Or if you haven't had an epiphany, it's the M. Night Shyamalan twist, right? Right. So if all things go according to plan for your party and they've you know discovered the culprit, they know what it is, they've got proof in hand... Well, they're going to do what you do in Clue and make that accusation. Yep. Accuse! You have to confront whoever did it or else there's no point in figuring it out. Right? right. And now you have the presentation of proof. Let them lay it all out like it's a court of law. You know, that one person pacing in the lobby, explaining it to the assembled hosts. Yeah, you can you can really play that up as like, wait, it couldn't have been me. What about that? Huh? How do you explain that? <laughs> Once your culprit is actually backed into a corner, there's going to be... A confession, either reluctant, right, continually insisting that it wasn't them, but they just can't argue with the preponderance of, ev of evidence, or maybe more fun is the bragging, right? Yes, of course I did it, you fools. And I would have gotten away with it if not for you meddling kids. <laughs> right. Now is the time for a monologue. Yep. Let me explain exactly how I did it. Yeah, and this is important to do that because even though it's kind of a one-off bottle episode within your campaign, you want the characters to have the information they need to carry this forward in the campaign as mm -hmm. a referenceable thing right so you want the actions here to drive the plot later on they need to know everything that happened right and as a gm it's your chance to sort of showcase all of the work that you did and the sort of behind the scenes story that you created yeah but you know don't go too far on that uh, yeah, not too far no nobody really wants to see you pull it out <laughs> 
if you've got a, a culprit who just isn't really the bragging type, you can do that thing where the other NPCs sort of have the epiphany once it's been revealed and go, wait a minute, is that why you did this thing? Is that why you gave me that loan knowing that I couldn't pay it back? Yeah, or you know, they ask him, well, why did you do it? And he won't say anything, but maybe one of the aides that you've been working with goes, it must have been because of his family being in mountains of debt and him needing to get out from under the bank. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Now, different from most murder mysteries, this is a great opportunity for an RPG to have a combat. Right, because nothing gets solved in RPGs without violence. (laughs) (laughs) So they've been backing to a corner. They're like, ah, of course I did it, you fools. And then in the movie, they pull out the gun. Right. And of course, no one else has a gun. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In an RPG, you know, they start flinging a spell. Great, roll initiative. Yep. Or this is a a great time to drop the ninja smoke bomb. Yeah. (laughs) Peace out through the window. You can have a chase. Yeah. Of course, it's optional. Maybe you just want to end this peaceably right and also maybe look at your watch well yeah and that's that's the key right is look at what you want to do with the campaign after this session and make sure that this session resolves in a way that sets you up for your next session so in morning glory the party is putting these clues together and going okay there was a man on the roof there were rats on the roof there were rats that can chew through stone there's a dead owl there's a flock of birds? Wait a minute, maybe those weren't actually birds. Hold on a second. Yeah, there's a flock of wings. Huh. <laughs> okay, so, and then there were these claw marks that didn't look like paws. They looked almost like hands. Right. Hmm. hmm. Well, we initially thought Rakshasa. <laughs> right, right. Oh, right, that's why you asked. Wait, are they close together like paws? Yeah, that's why we asked. Yeah. Right. I was like, yeah, I didn't expect that question. I was like, no, actually. Yeah. They're spread out like fingers. So the party, and I think it actually might have been Bran, was like, uh, I'm going to go with Vampire. Right. I think I'm going to go with Vampire. And and at that point, Angela, the player, chimed in and was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I remember this. I remember something from the from the setting guide. Right. Caius is a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> and then Caius is like, of course I'm a vampire, you right. idiots. <laughs> In game, I believe it was basically like the party going, well, let's search everyone for vampires. Everyone's going to get sunbeamed. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And like, if you're not a vampire, you're not going to care. Right. And then, you know, Caius and Marala basically go, well, jig is up. Yep. (laughs) Guess we might as well murder as many people as we possibly can. Right. (laughs) (laughs) While they're not looking. (laughs) So, yes, roll initiative and the the vampires got a surprise round. Uh, Yep. Of course, two vampires versus a party of six well armed with radiant damage and sunbeam. Yep. Doesn't fare too well. Although I believe Emery made excellent use of Force Cage yet again and just went, mm, I'm going to put morale in there. Yeah, now we're going to fight you one at a time, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the two vampires basically ignore the party and head straight for the other monarchs. Right. Trying to take out Arala and Boronel. They got close, but you guys were actually very good at playing bodyguard. Yeah, and this was um, that perfect example of have the resolution lead you into what you want next. Mm -hmm. And by attacking Orala and Boronel, you gave us the chance to save Orala and Boronel and thus gain some trust and credibility. Exactly. Which we did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if Boronel thought you were terrorists before, well, now you've saved his life and he's kind of morally obligated to think you're not a terrorist. Right. (laughs) Yeah, what did Merrick's DeCaneth ever do for you, Borno? <laughs> did he save your life? Huh? See, that's where Merrick screwed up. He should have put Borno's life in danger and then saved it. Right. He should have collapsed the tower that Borno was in. Uh, like all true sociopaths, this is this is how you get someone to love you. <laughs> <laughs> so the party is able to to kill the two vampires. But what would have happened if the party or whomever is playing this murder mystery didn't actually put the pieces together? Yeah, well, the big thing is the story still moves ahead. So whatever whatever they were racing on the clock happens, right? The villain gets away with it or <laughs> kills, uh, kills the heads of state or the wrong person goes to prison for what you did. Yeah. Or not what you did necessarily, but what for what you failed to prove somebody else did. Yeah, bad things happen. Right. But you still find out who done it. Yep. And uh, now you've got 
a new villain introduced into your campaign, right? Because you're still a loose end for that person. Mm-hmm. So whether it's they escaped after you rightfully accused them or whether they escaped and you could just be a potential source of, of exposing them later, they're going to stick around in the story now. Right. The other potential option is basically you have the storyline diverge ever so slightly from the uh, storyline where the party succeeds and then comes right back together. So the villain gets away with it. They are assured of victory. And so now they go, ha, you fools, of course it was me. And then they pull out the gun. Right. And then combat ensues. <laughs> but of course, if you do that, make sure the combat is really difficult because otherwise they, they need to have been assured assured that they were going to win. Right. Yeah, this is a good time for them to have their, you know, goons show up at the same time right you know (laughs) or it's an opportunity for the bumbling fool to knock something over and distract them just long enough right (laughs) the bumbling fool is a really really bad author insert you know (laughs) it turns out it's bahamut (laughs) right (laughs) all right and then once the story is wrapped up and everyone understands what actually happened which may take a couple times depending on certain personality types of your players yeah you you might be sending an email to explain this to everybody (laughs) especially if you're like us and alcohol is typically involved right what you really want is the drunkest person to explain it to everybody else at the table right (laughs) here's what happened here's what happened and you know maybe that becomes canon (laughs) but afterwards you've got the wrap-up that usually involves grateful npcs like for example the monarchs of an entire continent yeah there's going to be some type of reward for doing this probably more so than just your freedom Right. So in Morning Glory, for example, this was really just a very convenient way for me to get all of the other heads of state on the party's side so that they could ignore the geopolitical stuff and get into the final arc of actually stopping Belshalor. Yeah. Also, there might be some awesome loot. Loot works, especially if it's a bad person who leaves behind good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, is anyone going to use that gun? Right. (laughs) So tell me about this death's breath. Does he have any extra? I feel like I might need it on a certain monk. Oh, there's just the formula? That's fine. That's yeah, fine. I can, I can work with this. And then if you are playing this as a vignette within a larger story, you're going to want to provide further clues. Yeah, you want to lay the groundwork for the next arc of your campaign. Mm-hmm. So in the Morning Glory campaign, the party then finally investigates the Carnathy Chambers and finds stuff that we'll explain next week. Do you hear that, Ishan? That's the sound of six simultaneous sunbeams. Well, then it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at totalpartythrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Investigator Investments. If you've only heard the audio, the name may not necessarily make sense. So Shane, what is that? He is a priestly investigator. Right, the vestments, the uniform of a priest. Yeah, if you haven't gotten all of the puns we've tried to drop on this, like, <laughs> I don't think there's any left. <laughs> so this is the knowledgeable priest who is a man of God, but also goes around solving crimes. Right. Sometimes in the employ of the church, so maybe not. Yeah, it kind of depends on uh, what his relationship with the church is at the moment. <laughs> all right, so what's the build? Rogue 3... Knowledge Cleric 17. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it, it really is. So Rogue, we're going to take the Thief. That gives you expertise and in investigation and then choose between insight or perception. I like that we usually say, oh, you know, you should start Rogue because you get more skills. But this is really good if you have someone who began as a thief and then, you know, eventually found their way to God. Right. And, you know, insight is going to be if you tend to investigate the people involved in a crime and perception if you tend to investigate the things and places involved in a crime, right? Just kind of a difference of approach. It also gives you cunning action, which is just really handy for a cleric because you rarely use your bonus action. And then you've got handy abilities for (laughs) breaking into crime scenes (laughs) or for maybe using your cunning action to 
pocket some information or some evidence or pick a key out of somebody's pocket, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's nice because you may have authority from on high, but not necessarily legal authority. (laughs) Right, yeah. You might be an outsider in terms of actually investigating this crime. And then Knowledge Cleric is really just a little on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) So you get domain spells like Identify, Augury, Speak with Dead, Arcane Eye, Legend Lore, and Scrying. So like all the stuff. Really good for investigating (laughs) stuff, yeah. yeah. Uh, You also get expertise in history and then you can choose between nature arcana or religion religion is the most fitting but arcana might be useful if you deal with a lot of magical type crime right and remember you're combining this with your expertise from your rogue levels so you know you've got a lot of options yes spread you also get that really great channel divinity you just read people's thoughts yeah they make a (laughs) saving throw and if they fail you're reading their thoughts and then the best part is for free you can end the effect and cast suggestion on them without them getting a saving throw. So not only are you reading their thoughts, you're then maybe messing with them a little bit to get them to tell you other things that might not be on their surface. Yeah, or maybe even, why don't you tell us about that? Right. (laughs) That's a great way to get a confession, by the way. (laughs) Is that coercion? Mm. (laughs) It depends on how progressive your justice system is. Look, it wasn't command, it was suggestion. Right. (laughs) You'll also get potent spell casting, which is helpful because you'll be primarily a caster in combat. So your cantrips will add your wisdom modifier to damage. And then you get this really cool ability at level 17, which will be your capstone, which I think is really cool for a investigation-focused character. Visions of the past. You can take an object or you can enter an area and you can meditate in it and then learn about the history of that place. So you can see events that have happened there recently or important events in the owner of the object's life that involve that object. Yeah, I love the idea that you're basically getting getting this at character level 20. So the idea that you can solve almost any crime with no effort. Right. You walk and you see what happened here or what this object did. Yep. So you're only really called in for the like, for the crimes that stymie everybody else. Yeah, you only work the crime of the century. Mm-hmm. I, and, I mean, truthfully, you should be like the grand inquisitor of your order or whatever, right? Like, you probably don't have time to go investigate every Tom, Dick, and Harry who gets murdered in the street. Yeah, it's just faster to resurrect them. Exactly. Or, <laughs> you know, maybe it's not worth it. <laughs> um, but there are, there are a ton of cleric spells, and, and the reason we didn't really have to diversify... You get all of the detect magic and uh, detect good and evil and all those types of spells. You get enhanceability, which gives you advantage on rolls. You get fine traps in case you've got a real uh, <laughs> a real problem of a murderer. <laughs> right. The court is inside this hidden temple. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's uh, it's at, after the crime scene. You booby trap it, right? <laughs> To slow down the investigation, Ishan. Oh, all right. Of course. Right. Well, are you Dexter now suddenly where or, you have to throw the real cops off? Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me go one further. You booby trap the crime scene because you didn't murder this person to do anything to this person. Your motive was to harm the investigators. So you just picked a target that you knew would get the investigator uh, investments to you're, investigate. You're, okay, you're talking about the actual culprit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that makes me... I hate the church and I hate the cops. I will plant a bomb in this corpse. Exactly. You also get Zone of Truth, which obviously handy. Glyph of Warding, that, that's a nice way to cordon off the crime scene, protect it from anybody meddling with it. <laughs> Just the explode into flame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or lightning. It's like, uh, please read our, our ticker tape. It says, I prepared explosive runes this morning. <laughs> Tongues, which is helpful for speaking with uh, witnesses who may not share the common language. Locate creature, obviously good oh. for finding your suspects. And I win in a lot of instances. <laughs> uh, yeah. Commune and Gesh. Gesh, you've got to get a little creative with how you're going to do that, but that is a great way to flip a witness. Right. <laughs> useful to make a mole. True seeing might help you a bit. And then it's uh, basically the fantasy version of that spray that all the like CSI people have. Oh yeah, it's definitely <laughs> that's that's definitely how you see semen in every crime scene is with true seeing. Great. You never want to go to a hotel with true seeing on. Yeah, no, don't don't do that. <laughs> Anti magic field could also be handy if they've cast something that might obfuscate the crime scene. Or they've convinced witnesses of something. Right. And then, you know, obviously 
True resurrection. <laughs> because you never want your victim to be truly dead. Or just, let's make that crime moot. Right. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're not a murderer. What are you doing? No, I killed him. No, no. No body. Can't have a murder without a body. <laughs> All right, Dijin. So what is the backstory for your investigator investments? Vigilante exorcist. So used to be in the church, called for, you know, those tough cases. Uh-huh. Where maybe it's a demon, maybe it's not a demon. Let's find this person. You're a ghostbuster. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But, you know, you've stepped on a few toes in the hierarchy and you've probably been either nearly or actually excommunicated. Ghostbusters 2. Yes. You've been excommunicated from the franchise. (laughs) But you still got your proton pack. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So you travel around doing, trying to do as much good as you possibly can Mm -hmm. by finding people who need your help, who may or may not share your faith, but they don't understand the strange things that happen in the world. They don't know that these are demons. So you go around, you solve crimes to pay a few bills, you move on to the next place, and then when you actually find someone who's being harassed by a horrible abomination, you get rid of it. Nice. It's like kung fu, but with demons. Is that supernatural? Is that yeah. that show? Yeah, kind of. I, I guess uh, demons or undead. You could do both. Yeah. Yeah. What about your investigator investments? Well, mine is an inquisitor. Yeah, of course it is. But in the classical term, not in my <laughs> usual 40K slash Spanish Inquisition form of the term. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Like the literal meaning of the term. Right. One yeah. who asks questions. He asks questions. Okay. Correct. Yes. So when the temple of whichever deity in this world values knowledge, when the temple recognizes that a particular crime is of great import to the gods, they dispatch their inquisitor to solve it. He's not rooting out heretics. He's trying to make the world a better place. Does he just drive people insane with the Socratic method? Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't do psychic damage in any way. <laughs> it's the bard's build. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we are running long on time, but we have one more thing to do before we get out of here. I believe we owe someone a book. All right. Would you like to draw a name from this hat? I would. This is a very fancy hat. So the winner is... <laughs> Curfstol. And now I have to go find the Norwegian iTunes to read the review. <laughs> so so Curfstol submitted his review on july 9th we haven't actually read it on the air because i have to go through every single country individually to see uh, reviews posted from that country so fortunately he sent us an email and let us know that he had submitted it and would like to be part of the contest we are now going to learn how to send mail international yep but i will i will now read it it is called just plain brilliant five stars one of the best podcasts on this subject in my opinion a great inspiration for GMs slash DMs slash storytellers. Keep up the excellent work. Well, now I feel better about mailing things to Norway. I also, I mean, we did read this like two episodes ago. We did? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, good. But thank you, everyone, for submitting reviews, for uh, writing in to, to enter the contest. It was uh, great to see how many listeners we actually have. Um, that was like a- amazing. Four? <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least. It's really great. And in the future, we will be having more contests every time we get something from a publicist for review we're not keeping it for ourselves we're giving it to you and we also have some t-shirts some buttons some just random (laughs) tpt branded stuff that we're uh we're going to throw in with it as well all right if you are listening to the show and did not get in on the contest you can still support us by leaving us a five-star review on itunes and if you're willing to help us out we will read your five-star review on the air we now have quite a few to read by the way Which is excellent, but we will get to each and every one of them. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And we are also on Google Play. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, I know a lot of you have been listening to tons of podcasts featuring Monty Cook because the Invisible Sun Kickstarter is up. We will be talking to Monty, but we will specifically be talking about world building in addition to their new game. And in the Character Creation Forge... We're building the Old Man of the Mountain. Well, that's it for episode 58 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Uh Uh-oh. Norway. (laughs)
<laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, sh- <laughs> Mother. <laughs> All right. Well, I, we said it, man. We didn't yeah. say it. we didn't put any limit. Nope. I, okay. We're still recording, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, we. Uh, we. I mean, no, we, no. Look, look. <laughs> we had w- one entry was from Norway, and we actually looked at each other and said. I mean, I hope it's not this person. Like, if it's this person, fine, but I hope it's not because we don't have to mail something to Norway. Now I have to learn how to mail things to Norway. <laughs> right.